0: Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Noah Solomon, who's Associate Professor of Religion at Carleton College and winner of the AAR Book Award in the Analytical Descriptive Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, For Love of the Prophet, An Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State, published with Princeton University Press. Congratulations, Noah, and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Christian. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Yeah. Now, this is a, a really exciting book, uh, one, both for the, the topic. It's, a, I think, an unexplored uh, subject, in at least in the terms that you address it, uh, outside of the kind of issues of conflict, perhaps, um, and l- looking really at what people are up to and how they're thinking about um, their relationship to religion. Um, but also some of the theoretical contributions I think that you uh, provide, uh, especially for people outside of Islamic studies. Um, so I hope that that many people will pick up your book. Now, uh, many people uh, will likely be unfamiliar with Islam and Sudan. Um, so can, do you think you could start by kind of offering uh, a brief sketch of um, the social, political landscape? Um, in terms of what, what we would need to understand in order to kind of think about your project. Uh, what, what's the contemporary Sudanese, Sudanese state look like? Uh, how, do, how does its uh, predecessors inform the logics of uh, political participation or, or public life? Um, what, what should we know to get started?
1: Great. Uh, thanks so much. This is always um, a really difficult question to answer, to be fully honest with you, and the, the reason is that one could start the story in any number of places, as I'm sure is true in so many contexts. Um, until its partition in 2011, Sudan was the largest country in Africa with political processes that were sometimes housed in the state, but also ones that were deeply decentralized in terms of rebel movements and other non-state dynamics that equally have... I think really shaped Sudan's present as much as the narrative that would focus on a story of successive regimes, and indeed that's how most um, works on Sudan have been written. All of this uh, said, uh, my book does have a page one, it does uh, necessarily uh, choose a starting point, point. Um, and that starting point is the British colonial period that begins in 1899 and lasts until 1956 when Sudan declares its independence. Um, The colonial project comes on the heels of Sudan's first Islamic uprising, and that is the uprising of the Mahdi, an eschatological figure who played somewhat of a similar role in the Western imaginary to Osama bin Laden only 100 years prior in being really the epitome and image of what was understood to be Islamic fanaticism. And the British begin a project during that period, very early on in fact, both to install secular governance in place of the Mahdi's regime and to reform Islam, a project whose resonances with current Western projects really I don't think can be ignored. Um, however, I begin the story that I tell with the colonial period because it was there that we see, I think, really the first origins of the Sudanese state. I argue in the book that with phrases like the Islamic State, we tend as scholars to spend a lot of time on the Islamic half of it and its genealogy, which is of course a necessary part of the story, but we spend much less time on the state and its history, and that to understand any attempt at establishing an Islamic State, we really need to understand both the Islamic and the state. It was in the colonial period in particular that the state attempt to set up institutions that manage religion centrally began really, I think, in earnest. And indeed, despite their florid rhetoric against Western colonialism, the Islamists who led the coup that led to the government that we have still in power in Sudan today really inherited that from the colonial regime. After discussing the colonial period, the book jumps to the coup of 1989, termed by its proponents the Revolution of National Salvation. Here, a party which was an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood came to power with the ba- backing of a really um, powerful faction of the army. The second chapter of the book traces the story of this regime as it went from a more idealistic stage to one that was far more pragmatic as it sought to end more than 20 years of civil war with the South and its main representative, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, or the SPLM, led at that time by a figure called Dr. John Gudang When I arrived in Sudan to begin my field work, a peace agreement between this SPLM and the government in the North had just been signed. And the peace agreement was to establish a period in which unity between the two halves of Sudan Um, might be made attractive. Um, The SPLM, which represented a plurality of non-Muslims, had founded its movement on secularism and opposition to an Islamic identity for Sudan. And now the government in the north was really, I think, um, forced to grapple with how to appease the SPLM, but also to avoid giving up on the Islamic project entirely. This effort, um, the book notes, was unsuccessful in the end. Unity was not made attractive, and in 2010, Southerners voted in a referendum overwhelmingly for secession, which in fact occurred in July of 2011. So the book follows the itinerary of the Islamic State Project through that period in particular, with an epilogue that discusses some more recent developments um, in the post-secession period.
0: Now, uh, y- your title gestures towards a political anthropology of sorts, uh, and you you state in the book uh, in, in a couple different ways, but basically that you you're approaching the state from the bottom up. So, um, h- how do you go about uh, doing an ethnography of an Islamic state? And uh, what did you find in terms of uh, the the perhaps uh, tensions or um, relationship between uh, the, the operations of the Islamic State and then the, uh, the, the on-the-ground uh, Islamic public sphere?
1: That's a great question. Thanks, Christian. Um, really, uh, one of the main goals of the book, as far as its intervention into uh, what we might call the anthropology of Islam, is to question the common divide placed between the state and the public sphere. In such literature, the public sphere is often celebrated as a place of debate, of the democratization of knowledge, of, dare I say it, freedom, whereas the state is considered a space of artifice, of control, of single-mindedness, etc. I think, moreover, the lines between these two things are drawn pretty boldly uh, in some of this literature, wherein we get studies of the state or the public sphere, but that the latter, the public sphere, is understood only to be conceivable as the states outside. From the get-go in my research, I found such models to be unsustainable. And by, by the get-go, I mean that before I even had a chance to grapple with whether or not conceptually such a divide made any sense, I was struck by the fact that empirically it seemed entirely unsustainable. So many figures I encountered in the field seemed not neatly to fit into either category of state or public sphere, figures who, depending on who you asked, were either, for example, supporters of regime of the regime sorry, or, or opponents. I had the option as an ethnographer of deciding that one side, the side that identified such figures as opponents or the side that identified such figures as supporters, I had the option of deciding that one side was deluded and the other was correct. But this didn't exactly seem to me to be satisfactory. Instead, what started to become clear is that both were right in a sense, that the line was not so easy to draw between what was of the state and what was outside of it. So, um, take for example uh, the figure that I discussed at various points of the book, a figure, a uh, Sufi sheikh called Abdurrahim al Burai. Al Burai uh, is a figure who, who really is emblematic of this, uh, of this uh, phenomenon. He's both enabled by the regime and its project to create an Islamic cultural sphere. He makes use of their media infrastructure to gain an unprecedented popularity among the public. And our um, is a refuge, really, I think, for those seeking a way out of the Muslim Brotherhood-inspired politics of the regime. As a national figure, he's unimaginable without the Islamization of the state. And I mean this both as a cultural project and in terms of the regime's uh, variety of what we might call modernist urban development, which brought these rural religious leaders to the capital in the first place. So as a national figure, al burai is, as I said, unimaginable without the Islamization of the state. But he also, at the same time, represents a form of Islamic power that's not reducible to it either. An alternative even to the modernist Islam that the government sought to, to foster. He's both of the state and not. So it was figures like al Burai who made me feel that we were in need, really, of a new theoretical model that understood the state and the public sphere as intertwined as necessary parts of one another. And as an aside, I just want to say one more thing if I'm not getting too long-winded. It it was for this reason that I didn't spend a ton of time during my fieldwork on the institutions of the Islamic State, law, education, guidance, and pious endowments, etc., where most studies of such things have been located. The reason for this was that, one, these institutions were put somewhat on ice during the period of national unity in which I arrived in Sudan due to the peace agreement and what it required. but but also the empirical data before me insisted that the Islamic state was both more pervasive and more elusive than one might at first think. I want to stress that this uh, that this feeling that I had of it being more pervasive and more elusive was really by design and that this is related in some sense to the title, of my book, For Love of the Prophet, and that the government had begun to think that an Islamic State project that was imposed didn't go far enough, and it sought ways to instill desire for an Islamic State, to make one want an Islamic State. And one means that I discuss in the book is through these projects to instill love of the Prophet, an emotion classically tied to the individual believer, but here in the Sudanese nation as a whole. And it should be noted that this is happening at the very moment that other political trends were pushing Sudan towards a model that would embrace its multi-religiousness. To follow these trends that aimed at instilling desire for Islamic politics, I really had to look elsewhere than merely institutions, and I did. I looked at epistemological problem, uh, sorry, projects in the sciences in the Islamization of knowledge, at sonic projects to create an Islamic aesthetics which would cultivate certain kinds of pious virtues, and also at political work undertaken to avoid a sovereignty based on closeness to God, getting to amorphous and diffuse where anyone could claim it. The problem of ISIS, for example, at least according to the regime, such state projects took. Uh, you know, really took on and unfolded far more in what we might call the public sphere than in the classical apparatus of the modern state. And that's why I sought a project that really tried to bridge these two things.
0: Yeah, and uh, the other thing that your book does really well is the this kind of blurring of the secular and the religious. You know, how do how do you make sense of this in your in your project? Can we disentangle these spheres in, in meaningful ways when we're looking at your subjects? you You put it uh that we leave Islamic politics untranslated so what what do we find if we do that if we kind of look at the Islamic state out of Western political discourses
1: yeah thanks um yeah, that question seems to have a couple parts I'll try to um address <laughs> sorry them. no 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 that's great. I just want to make sure i I get to both both halves of it um first as this question of um Uh, how or if we can untangle uh, secular and Islamic politics. I mean, how I'd answer that is I don't think that we can untangle the two in any meaningful way. The secular state and its modes of organizing life are entirely unescapable in the 21st century so that even an Islamic state is built on its infrastructure. And that's kind of why I start with the British colonial project. That said, I don't think that one can be reduced to the other either or that there's something disingenuous or incoherent about the idea of an Islamic state given the power of a secular modern, which would obviously be another um, response to to the first recognition that I made, that they're inseparable. I don't think that that thereby means that they're, uh, one is reducible to the other. The Islamists that I work with uh, were not at all deluded into thinking that the form that they'd chosen for their political project, that is the state, was somehow a neutral one, into which they could just place their ambitions just as easily as any other model, a caliphate or otherwise. Instead, they... they uh, they sought productively to use the mechanisms of the state, whether it be its abstract authority, its concern with population, I don't know, its bureaucratic forms of life-making, to form certain kinds of Islamic subjects. That was a serious agenda of theirs. These subjects ideally inhabited a set of virtues that were different than those of the secular state. Indeed, scholars like Hassan Atarabi, the intellectual who lay behind the 1989 coup in many ways he argued that the state was like other scientific discoveries ones that are part of human heritage and that should be embraced by muslims as an advancement in political practice for the modern age so the Sudanese government used the state to foster certain kinds of islamic subjects as i've said ones that thought about identity personhood and the common good in ways that both pulled on classical islamic sources and also, I think, took them in new directions. So, um, this, as to the second half of your question, what I mean by leaving Islamic politics untranslated, um, what I mean is that one of the goals of the book is to get beyond the analysis of Islamic politics in which it is interesting only to the extent that it speaks to us and to our problems in the West, either in opposition to all we hold dear or as a kind of civil Islam, as some scholars have put it. That is a set of democratic, liberal values just spoken in an Islamic idiom. There is so much more to it. That's what I was trying to stress, as simple as that. And I think because of the length of the experiment in Islamic politics that I studied, we really had the opportunity to observe a conversation um, that in which people contested and engaged not with the West as the primary interlocutor but instead with a 20-year experiment with Islamic politics put forward by the regime that hadn't delivered on what it promised. And the question was asked what other alternatives are available? Looking at the categories that this conversation engaged in order to have this conversation I mean two off the top of my head that um, that I mention in the book are the categories of tahara and najasa, ritual purity and corruption. Looking at these categories, uh, ones that don't correspond to political categories we use in the West, um, and to understand their political weight is another focus of the book, to flesh out really the richness of the conversation going on that doesn't necessarily always track with debates going on in Western political or academic fora in terms of what makes a felicitous political subject a valid form of sovereignty or a set of goals that might correspond uh, to this world as much as to the next. So that's that's kind of what I was getting at with this idea of leaving Islamic politics untranslated.
0: Um, well, no, there's there's such rich detail and really interesting stories that you you tell in your book. And I wish we could like go through some of them. Um, But I I think it's probably better to outline the ways in which you think other people in the study of religion uh, might benefit from your work. What what do you think your book has to offer in terms of either uh, methodological questions or theoretical considerations that uh, people might be able to apply to their own work?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, Well, I mean, on on the one hand, I feel like it's somewhat presumptuous of me to to answer this question. (laughs) Um, But perhaps I I, I could flip it just a, a little bit if it's okay with you, and maybe answer sort of what kind of conversations I hope the book can start with those not engaged in the study of
0: Islam. That sounds great.
1: Well, um, I, think, I think, firstly, it, it's been a topic, obviously, in many fields of religious studies as to what religious politics looks like in our secular age. This has been studied at the microcosm and religious movements of various sorts, but I think few have had the opportunity to look at how such politics play out at the level of the state, and fewer still from the ground up, based not on written policies, but rather how such political systems evolve, are lived, and are contested. Um, And I think this is because few contexts have arisen in which religiously founded political thought have had the opportunity to be tested in the way that it did in Sudan, with quite literally the works of Islamist political thought, of Muslim Brotherhood-inspired political thought, being taken up um, you know, page by page, by such an apparatus, and so what I hope is that the book offers uh, somewhat of a, a practical context, a context that. You know, takes into account the many contingencies of daily political praxis and of the kinds of international pressures and contexts in which the building of a state project must necessarily take place. That it offers this practical context to other works that are maybe based in political theory from religious perspectives, um, and you know, gives a sense of what some of that might look like when it uh, is forced to, um, you know, when the when the rubber hits the road. The other thing that's really important to me, kind of methodologically speaking, is this idea of leaving what we study uh, untranslated. You know, uh, of course, we must translate to be intelligible to our readership, but learning how to bracket our own concerns to construct a study in which we, um, while perhaps necessarily an intermediary, are not the object, and thus to imagine a political future that's not hemmed in by our terms and our agendas, to me seems like um, a worthy. Um, method to take on in any number of studies and i hope that uh, the book can contribute to those kind of conversations too
0: well thank you no it it really is a wonderful book and well deserving of all the accolades that you you've got that's really generous of you thanks and i hope uh that our short little conversation will inspire uh others to to pick it up thank
1: you so much thanks so much for your time christian